0: Today's show is sponsored by Synchrony Financial. Ambition lives everywhere. Synchrony Financial has the payments, tools, and technologies, promotional financing, and retail insights to help you achieve whatever you're working on. Learn more at SynchronyFinancial.com. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as someone who believes we are living in the matrix. The news is so ridiculous that someone has to be writing it. But in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or just visit recode.net slash podcasts for more. Today in the red chair is Jeremy Balenson, the founder of the Virtual Human Interaction Lab at Stanford University, where we are taping this podcast. He's also a professor in Stanford's communication department and is the author of a new book called Experience on Demand, what virtual reality is, how it works, and what it can do. Jeremy, welcome to Recode Deco.
1: It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank Good.
0: you. So Jeremy and I met on a panel. Uh, we, I've known of you, of course, for a long time, um, about Common Sense Media and the impact of virtual reality on kids. And we'll get to that in, in a minute. And we just went through uh, a short uh, version of a virtual reality thing that Jeremy's working on, which we'll also talk about, which is around empathy and the actual um maybe helpful uses of VR versus just entertainment. But let's get a little background on you and how you got to here and what you're doing, what Stanford's doing in this area. Because it's, it's, it's a growing area, obviously, within Silicon Valley.
1: So I've been working in virtual reality since 1999. So you're one of the early ones. And my PhD was in cognitive psychology. Mm-hmm. And in 1999, I looked around and I realized that I didn't really love what I was doing. I was building models of how the mind worked, uh, mm-hmm. running experiments on people and, and writing computer programs to represent the mind. And I decided I want to leave my field, and mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to get a postdoc at UC Santa Barbara, mm-hmm. where I learned how to build VR from a hardware standpoint. Why
0: VR? What got you? What got you? Sorry to interject, but
1: no. So. One of the reasons I got into VR was an amazing novel called Neuromancer, science mm-hmm. fiction by William Gibson. It affects a lot of people. And it was, uh, you know, I realized as I was trying to build artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. I wasn't that good at it. Right. Um, but with VR, you can fake intelligence. You can mm-hmm. create an illusion that causes people to really feel like they're in a place. And, right. you know, I was inspired by Neuromancer. What I, was
0: inspiring? Because I thought you were going to say Ready Player One, which is about to become a movie. That's another one.
1: I just reread Ready Player One, and it's awesome, but to me, Neuromancer is the true Bible. Because
0: why? Tell me why.
1: It really pushes, in a world where VR is... What does it mean to be a person? What does it mean to be co-located with people? You know, unfortunately, it's a very dark vision. Mm-hmm. Um, they all are, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. If it bleeds, it leads, right? Yeah. Um, but in terms of, especially, you got to remember, Gibson writes this in the late 70s. Right. And when he writes it, he's working with Jaron Lanier, who's the godfather of VR, created the term. And there's this synergy where the really early demos of VR, you know, he takes these into account as he's writing it. Mm-hmm. And, and in my opinion, just really sets up a place to understand what people are. When so did,
0: uh, something coming from cognitive psychology, you'd be attracted to this, like remaking people the way they are in a different place.
1: In a world where there's no rules, what mm-hmm. do people do? Mm-hmm. And that's really what got me excited.
0: Right. And there were the, the games. There were a lot of these games that were in that genre and, and worlds that people would create. And games, even, even those, all the different games, all the various Dungeons and Dragons games were a version of that.
1: The first VR I ever did was in 1994. Mm-hmm. I was interviewing to be a grad student at Berkeley, mm-hmm. and uh, on the Embarcadero they had this game called Dactyl Nightmare, and <laughs> it was uh, you know running there at ten frames, a, running at ten frames a second. The tracking was off. I, mm-hmm. It was still one of the coolest what things I've done. What did you doing? It
0: Dactyl Nightmare. You were stood Jesus. on the
1: platform, and it was tr- they tried to do it networked, and you were uh, you were basically you know combating people and uh, terror and dinosaurs, and uh, to be honest, all the details are a little fuzzy, right?
0: But you liked it. But, you sound, but it was oh, enough cool. to make me think. What that. were you wearing on your head? Like a big giant helmet?
1: Uh, the helmet was not big and giant. It was it was uh, certainly bigger and gianter than what we have now, Still consumer grade. Yeah. But um, you know, nothing compared to the monstrosities that I later put in my lab upstairs.
0: Right, again. that's yeah. what I thought. So you so you started doing that, and and so you were, there weren't that many people in the field that it was talked about a lot. There was a lot of attention towards uh, Jaron and others.
1: There was a handful of engineers that were doing it, mm-hmm. and then the reason I got this postdoc at UC Santa Barbara is because we were using it to study perception. Mm-hmm. So if you Try to think about how the human understands vision, uh, how we understand sight and sounds. VR is a great tool because you can, say, dissociate what the eyes see from what the body's doing. You can have a person physically walking but not see the updates or vice versa. And it's a really nice way to understand the visual system. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky enough to get this postdoc at Santa Barbara Mm -hmm. uh, where there, again, just a handful of people looking at psych and VR. And um, I was lucky enough to shift out of perceptual psychology and work with a guy named Jim Blaskovich who taught me the social world, how to ask bigger questions about social interaction and Mm -hmm. communication and training. And what began was a, a really fun collaboration where we asked the question, in a world where there's no rules, you can change your age. You can look at two people at once. Mm-hmm. You can have your avatar mimic somebody. Mm-hmm. When there's no social rules, what happens and how does it change the world?
0: Right. And so one of the things that you know, meanwhile, as you're doing this, the internet's starting to explode. Really, I mean, there was a downturn, but it pretty much was on the up and to the right. Essentially, people using it with some focus on VR, but a lot less because VR was uh, VR and other and artificial intelligence were sort of hot for a while and then weren't. Um, Because people more focused on portals, and then social media, and different, and Twitter, and things like that. What happened during that period? Would you say in the. Because it, it's just it's made a comeback. Let's just say.
1: So from my perspective, VR is growing in that period. Because mm-hmm. when I get there, there's ten people, social scientists that are even delving at all into this. And mm-hmm. from my perspective, I never thought it was going to be a consumer product this soon. I, I, I that wasn't the frame that I had. For me, it was wow, we're actually getting to publish in places that are reputable. And whoa, Stanford's bringing me out for job interview. What, what's mm-hmm. wrong with those crazy guys? Why would they interview somebody doing something so strange mm-hmm. uh, in 2003? So from my perspective, it actually was growing, but we I didn't have the consumer veil on
0: so, Which it has, which is, it's moved into. So let's talk about, just so you define, for the people who don't know um, these terms, uh, people have sort of mixed them up a lot of the time, virtual reality, mixed reality. Talk about what the differences are right now. When you say virtual reality, what do you mean versus other things?
1: Virtual reality is complete transportation. We block out light from the physical world. We block out sound. Mm -hmm. All of your senses get replaced, and it's really as if you went somewhere else psychologically, and you don't see the physical world. Right,
0: and right now it typically relies on eyes. There's haptic stuff, and there's, there's pushback, and some smells at some point.
1: So in my lab, we do always sight and sound. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do a little bit of haptics and we used to do a lot more uh, Mm -hmm. where you basically get force feedback uh, so you feel touch. And we do a little bit of scent. I'm happy later on to talk about our smell study, our donut study, Ah. and how it relates to eating. Oh,
0: sure. Absolutely. So virtually is just being transported elsewhere. Augmented reality is...
1: Augmented reality, the best way to think about AR is mm-hmm. multitasking. Mm-hmm. So augmented reality, most of what you see and hear comes from the physical world, and we put a digital layer over that. So right. if you're, there's a crowd of people, everybody can have a name tag over their head that only you can see, and you'll know their names.
0: Right, so it's in it's imposing digital things, like Pokemon, I think, is or what a key is doing around clothing and things like that. So, I mean, around uh, furniture, seeing in your living room. Um, and then mixed reality, is that different? or is that both of them together?
1: Mixed reality, in my humble opinion, is a term that's been created to make the world more confusing. <laughs> uh, that's
0: what I, we do as journalists. Uh,
1: well, I think it came from a corporation first, <laughs> but, and I won't name that corporation. But um, Mixed reality is, if you think of VR as all... Digital Mm -hmm. and AR is mostly physical light, Mm -hmm. then mixed reality gets you somewhere in the middle. Right. Um, So it's basically, you can think of it as a continuum. How much of the light are you letting in from the physical world?
0: Right. All right, well, let's stick to virtual reality because that's where you work in. But when you think about virtual reality, it did go commercial. Like, so you stayed at Stanford and you were studying what here? What were you hired to do? You did your postdoc. So, studying what?
1: So, we are here in the Department of Communication. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I arrived here, what I tunnel visioned on for eight years straight was social interaction. Mm-hmm. What happens when two people network into VR and they see each other's avatars, and what changes in terms of how they talk, how they feel connected. What are the implications of forming friendships online? The social interaction, because you have to get tenure here at Stanford, and and the way you do that is you just become as good as you possibly can on one area.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And why this? What was your thinking in this area?
1: Uh, again, Besides tenure, uh, Jeremy.
0: Well, I suspect you have other motivations.
1: Well, I, that's an interesting. We'll talk about the trajectory, but mm-hmm. post tenure, my trajectory changed drastically. Mm-hmm. So pre tenure. Uh, it was work that I thought was amazing and rigorous, and I'm very proud of it, but it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to be doing. So, what <laughs> the early work, the social interaction, I'm in the Department of Communication, so studying how people communicate seemed like a good fit. Sure. And remember, I came from psychology right. uh, and came to a new field of communication, so I wanted to try to stay as far down the line as I could. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, when I get tenure in 2010, that really frees me up to do work that may not be as you know publishable in the short term, uh, but is a little more out there, but things that I wanted to do. For example, mm-hmm. this is the work we do with using virtual reality to teach about climate change right. or to teach about uh, empathy or, or race yeah, and we're going to get into that. Yeah, I but,
0: think so. So the idea is using VR as a social tool to improve. So social justice, really.
1: The early work was about what happens when you put people together in VR, mm-hmm. and, and I still do that work, and we can right. talk about it. But yeah, I do want to
0: talk about that. Post
1: tenure, we shift to what happens when you put people in places, in places that in teach situations. them in situations, and right. so it didn't need to have the, the role social.
0: playing has been around forever. Like, but it's usually you're sitting in front of someone who doesn't look like what you're supposed to be, or or whatever. It, it's hard to do because it requires huge amounts of imagination and. And you know, shifting.
1: Whenever we build something in VR, we always go back to the old work and we mm-hmm. say, "How? Do, what was the best way to do it before? Mm-hmm. And we don't try to reinvent the wheel, so we certainly look to the role-playing work. All now. right,
0: let's talk about where VR is now, and then we'll talk about what you're doing now. So we, this book you've written, this is what you've been doing, is looking at that and then shifting the focus away from just, this is what people do when they're in VR. But I, I would like to know, what do people do in VR?
1: So luckily here at Stanford, we are a revolving door, mm-hmm. and everybody comes here... To, to see what we're doing, but also to show us what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And you know, from my perspective, there's been a tension, which is that the corporations, their job is to make money. Mm-hmm. Uh, they make money when everybody's using VR and you're using it all day long. So right. that's why you're seeing film and media mm-hmm. and and video games. Uh, in my experience, and I've been doing this for 20 years now, VR doesn't work for these long durations. Using it every day for a couple of reasons. Right. Um, so for me, it's been watching the companies who think that they can just do everything they've always done in VR mm-hmm. uh, come to grips with the fact, and of course no one listens to me when I, when I politely suggest that they've got to learn on their own, uh, there's a reason people aren't playing video games for 10 hours a day in VR right. or why you haven't seen a feature film that anyone has gone to because right. VR is not about, in my opinion, long durations. It's not about something you use all the time. It's for these very intense, teachable aha moments mm-hmm. that, you know, you just did a demo in my lab, Kara, and, you know, you got it. It mm-hmm. took you about two, three minutes. You didn't need to be in there for 20 minutes.
0: So. Right, right. Yeah, you could. You could just be do that endlessly, but there is a point where you get. It's interesting, when I try VR now, it's, it's exactly that. I'm like, okay, I got that. Like, I don't want to be with the gnomes, or I don't want to touch the whale anymore. I got touching the whale. And some of them are more appealing than others, like if you're in Hawaii, or you know, or on a boat, it's kind of cool. But eventually, it's that's enough. That's enough.
1: What we're trying to find as a field of VR mm-hmm. is, you know, when you and I on the panel together, you made a uh, it was a funny comment about who would wear these go- who would actually wear well, these we'll goggles. Get into the hardware, uh, yeah. And and the answer is if the content is good enough, you will do it.
0: Of course, yes. And it's
1: not good enough yet. Sometimes it is and we can talk right. about the cases. So my my t- I was
0: talking about commercialization. Most people yeah. just it's too not affordable and hard to use. So I
1: totally nice. agree. I totally agree. And and but even if you're going to a shopping mall or or, or museum, the content's got to be good right. enough to justify yep. messing up your hair, getting those lines around your face, yep. ha- having your buddies take pictures of you, and 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 making fun. Of, you know, and so we try to focus in the lab on content that's worth doing, mm-hmm. but not all content is that
0: right. So you're focusing not on the entertainment aspects of it now.
1: Look, I'm I'm all for entertainment, and and when VR works for entertainment, then I think it's going to be great. Mm-hmm. You know, we're choosing to focus the lab's energy on how to use VR to to try to solve some harder problems. Some not- harder problems here,
0: and how, what is the interest among commercial companies when you're doing that? Because they want to what watch movies. I mean, we can talk about why Facebook bought Oculus or why different companies are involved in it. But everybody, as Google is, all the all the all the internet companies for sure, and the entertainment companies are certainly dabbling.
1: Look, the companies come here and visit, and uh, all of them have a wing. You can name which big one. They all have a wing, VR for good or VR Mm -hmm. for social. So they're all playing in this space and, mm-hmm. and and I actually think that uh, you know the people who I've talked to they care and they're mm-hmm. doing it for the right reasons that being said that's not going to be how their business succeeds their right. business is going to succeed because you read the news in VR and, and you uh, you know you're watching your sitcoms in VR and so they they we spend a lot of time talking to them we give endless demos to, to groups from different companies uh, mm-hmm. and I talk to the, the leaders of these companies and I get on my soapbox and they politely listen to me about you shouldn't use it all day it's not for all types of content and mm-hmm. you know, we'll see what happens. They'd
0: then. like us doing it all day. And anyway, you were sitting here talking with Jeremy Ballinson. He's a Stanford professor um, who is the founder of the Virtual Human Interaction Lab. I went, why did you name it that? Virtual Human? Well, how virtual humans interact.
1: So no one ever asked that question. I'm glad you did. <laughs> uh, it was a careful process because <laughs> I wanted to, when I first got to Stanford, I couldn't be seen as the VR guy because mm-hmm. VR was a not a thing, right? right yeah, yeah. yeah and oh, the
0: so VR I, guy <laughs> is that an insult? It's oh, it's the VR guy. I, like, what is that That's, weird? Let's move quickly from RT so he won't come and sit with us. I mean,
1: look, had you met me in 1999, we would not be having this interview. Yeah. Like, what do you do? Yeah. That's a ridiculous. I knew what it was then. I know you knew what it was, but it wouldn't be worth you know I two hours. I was much of, more
0: interested than I was at MIT. You know, yeah, they're doing yeah, all yeah. that stuff at MIT around it. But go ahead. Of
1: course. Um, so. Uh, I couldn't be the VR guy. So virtual human interaction really points to that social collaborative yeah. nature.
0: I see. so it's it's humans, but virtual. That's right okay got it all right anyway here's a new book out called experience on demand I also can I do that also before you get to the next uh, segment experience on demand what does that mean
1: the advice you know if there's one take home piece that that listeners can have if VR's done well it's not a media experience it's an actual experience our yeah. studies in the lab have shown the brain tends to respond how you'd expect it to with a real event so as you create your content as you choose whether or not to do content think would I want to do this in the real world? It's mm-hmm. a, we, we The healthy way to think of VR is as an actual experience, not a media experience. Yeah,
0: I, it's interesting when you think about that. Uh, I, uh, I, I wouldn't want to jump out of a plane in a real world, but I'd like to do it, but I wouldn't. So I'd like to do it in a virtual.
1: So the, the, it's a great point, and the distinction is could versus Would. So I can't jump out of the plane in the real world, but I wouldn't VR.
0: Yes, exactly. No,
1: I I can murder somebody in the real world, but I wouldn't want to do it. So it's about you should do impossible things in Mm -hmm. VR. You shouldn't do things you wouldn't do otherwise. Yeah, I didn't know you wanted
0: to murder people, Jeremy. All right, we're here with Jeremy Valenson, Experience on Demand, what virtual reality is, how it works, and what it can do is his new book. He's a Stanford professor. When we get back, we're going to talk about uh, where virtual reality is and why so many of the internet companies are dabbling in it and sort of where we are in the process. Today's show is brought to you by Synchrony Financial. Ambition lives everywhere. At Synchrony Financial, they believe your ambition isn't something you just look forward to, it's what you work forward to. That's why they partner with businesses to help provide payment tools and technologies, promotional financing, and retail insights. Every day at more than 350,000 partner locations, they help people and businesses fulfill their unique ambitions, big and small, for themselves and their communities. Because at the end of the day, when customers succeed, businesses succeed. And when we all work together, we can achieve more than we can alone. The only question is, what are you working forward to? Learn more at SynchronyFinancial.com. I also want to tell you about Too Embarrassed to Ask, my other podcast, which I host with Lauren Good from The Verge. That's me. Yes, here you are still. Hi there. Every Friday, we answer your questions about consumer tech. Lauren, Who did we talk to this week? We talked to the Daily Beast's Taylor Lawrence about the world of YouTube YouTube. influencers. Influencers. Uh, Taylor, what makes a good influencer these days? What makes a bad one? (laughs) Bad one? Being outrageous and, I guess, I don't know, filming dead bodies. Uh, Good one? I guess being young and doing crazy pranks. Good meaning that you'll get an audience. Uh, Yeah. I guess being outrageous and insane as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a good thing, Taylor? Uh, It's not a good thing, but... (laughs) It'll get you views for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then we talked about how they make money, how they don't. Yeah. Make we money. talked about it's how they make trends. money. Uh, we talked about the merch strategy. We talked merch. about, yeah, their crazy lives <laughs> and, yeah. We did. We even strategized around uh, Two Embarrassed to Ask's upcoming merch. Yes, exactly. Taylor Lawrence watches YouTube, so we don't have to. Thank you for that, Taylor <laughs> Thank Anyway, you. It was a great discussion. We have to go listen to it. You can find Too Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's Too Embarrassed to Ask. See you there. We're here in the red chair with Jeremy Balanson, the founder of the Virtual Human Interaction Lab at Stanford University. That's a a mouthful, Jeremy. Um, He's also a professor in the communication department and the author of a new book called Experience on Demand, What Virtual Reality Is, How It Works, and What It Can Do. And we've been talking about how he got to virtual reality. Let's talk about where it is now. Now, Facebook made an enormous investment by buying Oculus. Uh, Magic Leap is another. There's just a lot of interest in Silicon Valley over this, although others are not as interested. I, I was just recently at Apple, and they're much more interested and in they are. That's their sort of focus, the phone being the center of it. Can you just talk about the state of play right now? Um, and, and not just, and, and also the academic state of play because that's different than than the commercial one.
1: Well, with Apple, the first rule of Apple is you do not talk about Apple. So uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it at that with Apple. Oh, dear, you must uh, be talking about Apple. Uh, Samsung is... All in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm on their advisory board. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time working with them to help them think that through. Uh, Microsoft hired, uh, so the genius Mark Bolas, mm-hmm. who was the USC professor uh, mm-hmm. that really Oculus is born because some people go and, and, and sit in Mark Bolas' lab. He's now at Microsoft. Of course, Jaron Lanier is at Microsoft. Uh, the Chinese companies are all dedicating, you know, Nine to ten figure budgets in this. Um, you know, Sony of course is the first person to really deliver it to living rooms with a PlayStation VR, about ten million. Yeah, yeah. So th- Sony's not a person, but go ahead. There's a lot of energy in that space.
0: Yeah, and why? What is the thinking? But when you when you've dealt with all of them in the very as they enter the picture, what is their interest?
1: So Kara, if 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 I knew the why, I would be, uh, you know. Wealthy and famous, uh-huh. uh, and the, I think they're struggling with the what do we really want people to do in here? I and mean, so mm-hmm. you brought up Pokemon Go. When you look at the commercials for augmented reality, it's it's helping me fix a sink, or mm-hmm. it's uh, you know let's really understand how to how, how to learn, and then you build it, and it's let's play Pokemon Go. So I, <laughs> I, I think uh, it's a it's a real challenge. It's a
0: lack of imagination,
1: Jeremy. Well, it's uh, you know Wozniak, uh, you know he talks about when he and Jobs uh, created uh, the personal computer uh, how they they got it wrong in terms of what they thought the use case is. Now, you know, Facebook, Oculus, they thought games was going to be the home run. And, sure. and, and, you know, in my opinion, uh, games are probably better in the current state they are in VR, and, and you're seeing at least slow progress there. So why they're doing it, you know, there's this kind of sense where everybody feels there's something here. Uh, it's a transformational, experiential thing, but no one's really figured out why.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And where, what is the best explanation that you have? when you think about it. And we'll get to the empathy part. I agree with you. I think what you're doing is much more important. What What is the why that, that's the best reason for a lot of these companies? Because the entertainment companies have been dabbling, not as much as the tech companies, obviously, because it's a, it's a heavily tech product, essentially.
1: So training, to me, uh, you know, what has been the one case that has persisted for the last three decades, and that's the military using VR to train soldiers. Mm-hmm. And when you take that lens and say, let's Let's use VR not just to train soldiers, but let's train athletes and let's train uh, people who work at a big consumer. So I, I think training is a low-hanging fruit.
0: Mm-hmm. In terms of what it's like, or be in situations,
1: or put them in. So uh, last year, uh, I co-founded a company called Stryver, Um mm-hmm. and uh, Striver began using VR to train quarterbacks, to teach quarterbacks how to look around, recognize a pattern. Last year, we trained over 100,000 employees of Walmart, mm-hmm. and what they were training are things like Look around. Is there a safety violation? Is there a sharp mm-hmm. knife out? Uh, look around uh, during holiday rush with everybody coming at you and practicing coping strategies in these really intense arousing mm-hmm. conditions. And this was a use case that you know of the many many things that Walmart trains as employees. There, there's there's literally a, a couple hundred page document. Mm-hmm. We chose four or five things out of there that actually we thought would be a good use case in VR. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, how expensive was that? Because to create the VR is for we just we just went through one on empathy, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But um, it's a very expensive to create each of these, correct? Or is the price coming down?
1: Or So in, in VR, there's three ways to do content. One mm-hmm. we won't talk about because it's not, it's not ripe yet, and that's called mm-hmm. light field capture. But putting that aside, mm-hmm. you either get to build 3D models using computer graphics, or you shoot in what's called 360 video. Uh, and 360 video is cheap, mm-hmm. easy, the problem is it's not interactive, so right. you can't grab an object. Uh, when you're going right. to computer graphics, that's where it gets more pricey and more expensive. And mm-hmm. so, depending on on what your needs are, uh, how much and in, how interactive you need it to be, it's going to get more expensive.
0: Is that what's stopping the development? Because you could do these all day long for companies, presumably.
1: So, if you were to ask me six months ago, what is blocking this from getting everywhere. Six months ago, I would have said position tracking, which is the way you measure how somebody moves physically so you can right. update the virtual scene. I think that that's not been solved, but there's been enough progress there that I don't think that that's a roadblock. I do believe that that content is the problem. Uh, and there's two, there's two roadblocks. The first is simply creating 3D models that look really good as expensive and right. we need more uh, people to become great 3D modelers. The second is narrative. And um, there's... Two challenges here. One is in general, storytelling is really hard to do well. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a reason why Recode has succeeded compared to everyone else, Mm because you guys know how to do storytelling. Um, The second is the traditional model of storytelling doesn't work in VR. We could talk about all the reasons. uh, Talk to me about a few. The first is attention. You know, when you have a listener to a podcast, you have her attention. Uh, there's no other sounds going through those ears. F- mm-hmm. In VR, if you want somebody to look at a, you know, at a specific spot at a specific time, you can't force that. So there can be some very important event going on. It could be a sidelong glance between two people. It can mm-hmm. be, you know, uh, something, uh, some, something moving in your field of view. And the user can be looking at her feet or she can be looking up in the sky. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to, you know, get people to focus. VR is anarchy. People can look anywhere whenever they want. A really good. Film thing. is fascism. You know, mm-hmm. it's great. The director, <laughs> she tells you where to look, when to look, and we have your this attention. This is what you
0: will be doing. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. They direct it. And in, in VR, people have choices.
1: And there's a lot of smart people trying to come up with solutions. So well, you can't to,
0: just manipulate people. I've heard people are manipulable.
1: So you can actually force their field of view, but then you get motion sickness. And right. So I'm, I'm a big wimp when it comes to motion sickness. If the, right. if the virtual camera moves and I'm not moving with it, I get dizzy. So. Right,
0: right, right. All right, talk about more. Problems. One is obviously these rooms where you wear the headsets, which are heavy and and onerous. And I've had lots of arguments with people. Typically, I hate to say it. It's a man is like, oh, it's fine. I'm like, it's not. It's not something that average people are going to want to do for very long. Like you were talking about, you could see you doing it in training, but it's a singular experience. You're alone. You seem feel isolated. You know you look stupid. Um, again, the headsets are still not ready for prime time. It feels like they could be lighter, and you know you see them in sci-fi in a way that. You're used to them like that already. Um, and you wonder why you're wearing this giant helmet, essentially. Where is that in the process? Or is it just a matter of cost and development?
1: So when we talk about the downsides of VR, uh, you hinted at one of them. And the first thing from my mind is distraction, mm-hmm. which is you've got this helmet on, you can't see the walls, you can't see if your You're cat comes hitting. in, you yeah. smash into things. You know, I have literally saved lives in my lab from, you know, the the head of the BBC, Lord Tony Hall, when he did this flying demo, decided just to do a backflip. Oh, and he's in his 70s, and I was right behind him spotting him, and I caught him, uh, and he was just fine. But in general, you're starting to see more of these accidents occur. Right. Uh, there's some new. Being the, the, the,
0: in the VR, he was doing a backflip, so he decided to physically do it. No,
1: in VR, he was taking off like Superman, and the way you do that is you put your hands over your head to take off like, like Superman would, and there's some haptic feedback you get from the ground, and <laughs> he just went with the motion and decided to oh jump God. backward. And, you know, we're very careful, in my lab. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Jeremy doesn't come with Oculus. And Germany right. doesn't come with the HTC right. Vive. And right. um, there's um, some news out of Russia, which, um, you know, how much we can trust in a Russian news agency is another story. About three weeks ago, a, a man uh, while playing a video game in VR fell through a plate glass table uh, mm-hmm. and died. Oh, uh, wow. And again, I can't verify Because they were
0: moving? Because they were moving in the space. They, they it
1: was get... a paragraph out of a, out of a, right. a news but wire. But you could
0: see that. You could see people so, moving. You don't I, know where to go. You're also nervous about what you're going to hit.
1: I, I've, and
0: the edges of where things are, so they have to be empty rooms. That's why, like you're thinking, if this is going to be commercial, you'd have to have like a room of empty room, like a a, a store of empty rooms for people
1: with mattresses. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, so I mean, I once a week I catch somebody. So right. uh, you did the demo upstairs. We'll talk about right. what you didn't do is are the ones that are more perceptually uh, deranged mm-hmm. things like walking a plank or we mm-hmm. do things uh, that you know uh, are, are designed to just be fun and, sure. and and but but there's you know by definition. VR is intense we, we choose to do things that that, right. that you wouldn't do in the physical world right and safety is something that I you know interesting I,
0: and then we talked just briefly about haptics and other things because that's still that still is not there and smells tell me about smells because that's because I get sight and sound that you kind of have that nailed essentially it's just a more of development but ha- and haptics is more difficult where it pushes back at you yeah or you grab something and you actually feel when you grab it
1: yeah haptics uh, the best way to do haptics is what we call passive haptics <laughs> uh, and that's what the location-based VR companies are doing like uh, nomad VR mm. uh, up in up in, in San Rafael, and that's a fancy word. If there's cobwebs in VR, they hang string.
0: Right. Uh,
1: and if there's a, a table in it's VR, like they old actually radio put a bar. Show, right. Yeah, haunted house radio. Yeah. Exactly.
0: So,
1: <laughs> um, to do uh, haptics using haptic devices, you know, we have one of the heroes here at Stanford. His name is Ken Salisbury, and, uh, and another uh, hero, her name is Allison Okamura, that does uh, medical haptics. And it's really really hard and expensive to do haptics well. So what mm. the companies have chosen is, uh, you know, a little bit of haptics. For example, a vibration of yeah. The, yeah. Of the controllers, and that gets you that gets you a, a long way. A little bit,
0: but it does. It's not real.
1: It's not the same type of feedback you get from a handshake, which is you know, if you take one hand and shake your other hand with it and press really hard. The amount of devices it would get to get the amount of force from all the different angles is oh, big, bigger than a yeah. car. Yeah, what that, has
0: to happen? and What's the breakthrough that has to happen?
1: Um, if I knew that again, I would yeah. be, I'd be a wealthy and famous man. Because yeah. um, that's
0: really, pe- feeling things is
1: really. I mean, the good news psychologically, we've done about seven or eight studies on social haptics, mm-hmm. uh, meaning when you feel touch from another person. And psychologically, even a tiny bit of haptic feedback really goes a long way. So yeah. I do think it's an important cue, and we should include it, but it's nowhere near as advanced as, as sight and sound sight
0: and then smell.
1: So smell... Interesting. Taste eventually. Well, oh, taste, uh, I, I've never seen any VR demos of taste yet. I don't they know how... We should,
0: why not? Yeah. I've seen, well, Disney does this whenever you're watching one of their movies with using their glasses. They always sh- shoot water and stuff at you. Oh, they, yeah, and amazing. smells. Like, all of a sudden, it's cinnamon buns everywhere. Yes. Yeah, I so, want to hear about this donuts.
1: So, smells, uh, the problem of how to create a novel smell by combining a certain number of primitives uh, of chemicals, that's pretty easy to do. In other words, mm-hmm. if you have a set number of chemicals in the lab, you can produce a lot of smells. Right. Now... With sight and sound, when you see an image, Mm -hmm. the image refreshes, meaning, you know, uh, 90 times a second, you replace what was there before, what was there disappears. With sound waves, the same thing happens. With virtual smell, if there's a stinky bird that flies by you, you beam some scent into the nose area Mm -hmm. and... The problem is that when that bird flies away, then the scent lingers. Right. In other words, you have to have fancy fan systems to clear mm-hmm. the scent. And right. you know, you're starting to see some demos uh, that are getting better. But that's been the holdup: is not creating the scent, right. but clearing through. it when it's well, just like
0: you're at the ocean. You'd want to smell the ocean, and then you wouldn't. Right?
1: When when it's there, it is stunning. There's right. there's there's some good demos up. so
0: what, donuts. What was the donut? so
1: uh, a postdoc of mine? He's uh, his name is Benji Lee. We we were just about to publish a paper. It's coming out in a few weeks. That asked the question: What contributes to feelings of hunger. Mm -hmm. And imagine you have a donut in your hand, Mm -hmm. okay, and you're bringing that donut to your mouth and you're about to eat it. There's three senses that are going into that. You see the donut in your hand, you feel the touch of your donut on your skin, and you smell the donut as it Mm -hmm. gets close. What we did in VR is we created an experiment where you could cross these conditions where we could basically, you could either see the donut or not in your hand, Mm -hmm. you could feel a plastic donut in your hand or not, Mm -hmm. and we could put some donut smell in front of your nose, yes or no. And what Mm -hmm. we could do is we could parse the unique contribution of touch and scent to how much donuts you want to eat later on. Yeah. how many donuts you want to eat later on. And uh, what we discovered in this paper, and it's very preliminary, very preliminary small sample, so take it as the first step of many, the two competing hypotheses was that when you had this very realistic donut uh, simulation that you'd want to eat more priming or you wouldn't want to eat more satiation. Mm -hmm. And after the study, we had a set number of donuts on the table and we allowed people to eat however many they wanted. And after touching and smelling the donut, they wanted to eat less Oh. So it acted. So they didn't get to eat
0: the donut. They Jeremy. me
1: They were welcome to take as many so as they eating wanted. Eating the donut uh,
0: is the key part. I get the touching and smelling it, but eating the donut is. So what... So
1: the big idea behind this work is: imagine if a beautiful hamburger looked like a hamburger smelled like a hamburger, but it was really a vegan patty. Uh, we've oh, just I solved see. climate change. Oh. We've just solved the obesity wow. epidemic. Yeah. It's, it's just, yeah. can you give the experience of tasting amazing food? With, and not
0: really doing it. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. You can move that to a lot of things, a lot of sex and lots of things.
1: There's a lot of experiences where, uh, you know, you want to have the experience, but not the, the side effects.
0: All right. We're going to talk about that when we get back. We're here with Jeremy Balenson. He's the founder of the Virtual Human Interaction Lab at Stanton Review University, where we're taping this podcast Uh, And or digitally taping at least, and he's a professor in Stanford's communications department. He's the author of a new book, Experience on Demand: What Virtual Reality Is, How It Works, and What It Can Do. Uh, When we get back, we're going to talk about what it can do in the future. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audiobooks are great for helping you be a better you, whether you want to feel healthier, get motivated, or learn something new. When you become an Audible member, get a free credit every month, good for any audiobook in the store, regardless of price, and unused credits roll over in the next month. If you don't like an audiobook, you can exchange it, no questions asked. Audible helps you listen to more books by letting you switch seamlessly among your devices, picking up exactly where you left off. Start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free. To get started, go to audible.com slash decode or text the word decode to 500-500. That's audible.com slash D-E-C-O-D-E, or you can get started with just a text. Just text the word decode to 500-500. We're here with Jeremy Ballinson, a professor at Stanford, who's an expert in virtual reality, but he's doing some really much more interesting things with them than just playing a stupid game or touching a whale or something like that. I don't not that I mind either of those things. Um, but some of the stuff you just showed me was empathy. And we've talked about that. We were on a panel recently discussing that. Um, one of the things I agree with you, training is a great way, and the military's been doing this forever, correct? Putting people in situations and, and role, it's essentially role playing, but with using digital tools. Um, talk about the empathy part. Um, you're debuting this, talk about this project.
1: So the recent project I'll talk about in a second, it's called Thousand Cut Journey. But as a lab, we've been studying VR empathy since 2003. Mm-hmm. And when I arrived at Stanford, we had a small grant from the company Cisco. And a brilliant woman named Marcia Satowski, she said, uh, Jeremy, can you use VR to do diversity training? The way we mm-hmm. do it now, it's, you know, it's informational, now, but it's not, it. it's not powerful. Right. And so we developed what you just did called the virtual mirror, which is you walk up to a mirror, you see your reflection and uh, what the neuroscientists call body transfer occurs, meaning as you move your physical body, you see your virtual body moving synchronously at the same time. After about four minutes, the brain expands its self-schema to include that virtual body. So <laughs> our big idea is you walk up to a mirror, you see yourself as someone else. I can change a my
0: woman or a, change my gender,
1: woman. my age, my race, I can become a different species <laughs> uh, and then you experience some trauma while wearing the body of another. You walk a mile in her shoes right. and since 2003, we've been publishing studies that show how it can affect ageism, racism, uh, discrimination against the disabled, uh, pretty much any domain in which an experience of walking a mile in someone else's shoes would help.
0: If they truly feel that, if they truly feel what the person feels.
1: It's another cue that they get that they wouldn't have otherwise and mm-hmm. we do We do tend to look at emotions mm-hmm. uh, but as a lab what sets us apart from a lot of people that do this work or that think about this is that we look at behavioral change mm-hmm. because with issues of race and gender all of us say we want to be better and most of us want to be better uh, but it's actually hard to change your mm-hmm. behavior mm-hmm. and so we tend to look at outcome measures.
0: So pertinent now for sure like people you know one of the things you were talking about is this idea of implicit racism I think it's explicit it's just people don't say it that's different than implicit I just think They're now allowed to say it, or they're able to say it because we have a president who says it like out loud. Um, I don't think it went away. I think uh, even Martin Luther King was writing about that. It's like we're not—we're just unveiling what's already there. So this is an idea I got. I became a young black kid uh, boy, and I got sort of a thousand cuts. You were using the more minor things, not the more. you know, the real heavy duty race. It was sort of getting picked on unnecessarily, having people make remarks about being black casually, um, kids doing it to each other, um, the teacher picking on you for doing the same thing a white kid did, that kind of stuff.
1: So this is a collaboration with Courtney Cogburn. She's a professor at Columbia University, and she studies implicit racial bias. Uh, That's what she does academically. And she and I worked together for over a year just on the storyboard, uh, working with her team members on things that have happened to them in their lives, Mm -hmm. watching documentaries, and and just talking to lots of people. And what we came up with, it's about a 10-minute journey where it was important to Courtney that the idea is these types of events happen to you every day all right. throughout your life. It doesn't happen micro-aggressions, once. Microaggressions, I think they're called. These microaggressions, they happen when you're a kid, when you're a teenager, when you're an adult. And in this, in this journey, you're wearing the body of a black person and you start by feeling discrimination in a schoolroom when you are uh, in third grade. And then you're a teenager um, where you have an interaction with the police that's very different from your white friends. Uh, and then you are an adult who is going on a job interview and you're seeing the same types of events. And so it's about a 10 minute experience where it's, thousand cuts showing that these things happen all the time.
0: And your result is you're trying to get people to be more empathetic. People who w- you would say, if you were doing the, the stopping, you'd put a white police officer or any police officer in that setting to see what it's like to be on the other side of it.
1: So uh, we, we haven't collected data with this yet because it's brand new, but let me tell you about the study we're just about to publish. Mm-hmm. And this is about becoming homeless. And it's mm-hmm. it's a ten minute journey where you start out by having a home and you slowly uh, over time, events happen to you, you lose your job, you get evicted, you can't afford a place to live. You try to sleep in your car, the cops roust you from there. Um, And this is one we've studied extensively. So it premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival uh, in 2016. And since then, we've run thousands of people through it, uh, and we've also looked, not just right afterwards, but eight weeks later. And what we're asking you to do there is to sign a petition, physically sign a petition, that says, I am willing to have my personal taxes increased to support affordable uh, housing measures. Mm-hmm. And so we're asking people to literally sign a petition, and what we're looking at is VR compared to control conditions, things like traditional role-playing. You,
0: and you talk about it, or else you try to like, stand on the street and explain why you should give something to something.
1: We have, a, we have an informational condition mm-hmm. as well. Uh, we have lots of control Conditions we work with um, my colleague at Stanford. His name is Jamil Zaki, and he's uh, an expert in empathy who studies the neuroscience of empathy. And he's also not a VR evangelist, so mm-hmm. it's a it's a nice collaboration because he comes at it you know not believing VR is going to be better than traditional right. role playing. So it's it's good to have that check and balance. Yeah, and
0: so one of the things I have, I think I brought it up in the panel, is that. Um, you can walk someone through what it's like to get arrested as a black kid, say in Baltimore, or whatever, and you could have a little bit of the terror around it. You could feel nervous uh, in a situation you've never been in, but it's a lifetime of behaviors. I think, you know, in this Me Too movement, a lot of women are like, yeah, sure, people do that. It happens all the time. Like they've got become a nerd to it and aware of it in the way that men aren't, for example. And I think putting them through one bad date is not going to, like a really a date that goes askew, or is not going to make them... Understand quite as much. I don't know. I just I feel like it's easy to forget that kind of thing.
1: This is definitely not a magic trick that's going right. to solve everything. It's, right. it's it's another tool that we can use, and and where I think you see the most benefit of VR right now is in motivation. Mm-hmm. So in 2015 at the Tribeca Film Festival we had a, a seven minute journey is called the Ocean Acidification Experience, and right. this was you learned about climate change, mm-hmm. how it affects the ocean. At Tribeca, they had this VR arcade open for about ten hours a day for seven days straight. I had a line of sometimes a hundred mm-hmm. adults deep waiting in line for sometimes up to an hour to learn about chemistry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because VR is experiential, it's novel and it's fun. People are motivated to do it better. So that you know, leveraging this kind of phase where it's novel, it's a way to get people to actually experience. Pay attention,
0: something. like you could see that. And where do you see most of the applications besides commercial it, it, schools? training,
1: So we have not. Why go to
0: school, Jeremy? At all? Why go to Stanford?
1: Well, uh, you know, we we went down this road with MOOCs, these Mm -hmm. uh, videotapes of professors, and so I actually work with the provost at Stanford to rethink our online education policy. And uh, where I come in is field trips. Mm -hmm. I don't want to replace the classroom. However, um, if you're going to go to learn about uh, the coral reefs, why not swim around them? If you're going to learn about the Statue of David, why look at a 2D picture? I mean, there seems to be some low-hanging fruits where VR actually will help. Right. I don't think we should blindly throw it at everything, but in those rare cases where this lesson helps. And then the cool thing about a VR simulation is just like the the the, the digital song, once you build one, every single person on the planet has, will have access to it, assuming they can get the
0: right. hardware. Right, presumably. presumably. And so let's finish up talking about the hardware and how, dif- yeah. How you know, again, it's the purview, I'm sorry, of white guys. Yeah, like sure, it seemed, sure. you, know, yeah. you know, I think Mark Zuckerberg bought Oculus because he thought it was cool and he had the billions to do so. Um, w- when does it become available to... Everybody, because, I mean, obviously cell phones were the purview of the rich, and then everybody has one, and these things have a way of of iterating through the society. But this is a more expensive and heavy-duty technical challenge.
1: So I I agree with the heavy-duty technical challenge. The expense, I'm not agreeing with, because... It costs the same as most of these video game platforms, mm-hmm. and these have—they're everywhere, right? You know, so I, I people have the money to buy the hardware. They do because they're buying those video games. Mm-hmm. The reason they're not is twofold. One is you pointed out to get these things working correctly. Uh, you know, if there's a driver update or if it's there's one always of the camera, a glitch. Every always,
0: every VR thing. I mean, like our little handle didn't yeah, work. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It's so um, because of that, it's not there yet. Uh, the second is content. Uh, content right now on the web is awesome. Mm -hmm. Content, uh, video games as a a commercial success are fantastic. And people have not come up with the, whether it's a game or a show or, they or haven't experience. figured out how to make it worth Why all the drama. That? Why
0: is that? does it take a whole new bunch of invent— I think it does. I think that's the problem, is that you have technical people here in Silicon Valley, and then you have Hollywood people which, who tell— like fascism tell stories in a certain way. It's a whole new genre of creative people.
1: I agree completely, and um, the one thing I will say is that if you look at the history of film, it took us a long time to get to where we <laughs> are today. So right. I, I, on the one hand, I, I'm completely agreeing that we need to break the template of let's have the film person come in and, and bring that over— Right. On the other Although hand, a lot
0: of film people are interested. Of course, Doctor John Favreau, yeah. director, famous director, and he's all in with that.
1: There's a number of folks who are, and and you know, if you think of the two industries that are grasping at VR, mm-hmm. it's journalism and it's film. Mm-hmm. And why are they doing that? Because they
0: have to have new ways of getting audiences.
1: That's right, people. Yeah. Um, so the location based VR companies, who and and this is, it's just like an arcade. They've got super high end, good tracking, and a lot of these kind of passive haptics, and it feels good like a haunted house type it turns out that uh, a year or two ago, how where are these things going to be? But now there are these places that no one really goes to anymore. They're called movie theaters. Mm-hmm. And you can just kind of sub on. them right into there. Yeah,
0: right? yeah, that's true. That's interesting. And getting back to the empathy thing, I, I do think that's the most promising and experiential things like I'd love to go to Bilbao, but I don't really want to go to Spain. This, You know what I mean? I'd love to walk through it, that kind of stuff, and really experience it in a different way than just looking at 2D pictures. Um, or hear a story in a different way that scares you. Like I could see horror movies being really terrifying if if you did them right. Um, but the, the issues around empathy and feeling, walking a mile in other people's shoes, I mean, you don't expect to, like, change people's... Uh, would, like, would you put this on Donald Trump's head and suddenly he wouldn't insult Haitians, or what? Like, what's the goal?
1: In the book, in Chapter 3, mm-hmm. what I do is I go through very carefully every study that I know of that's looked at VR and empathy, mm-hmm. and I, I really take an honest approach, which mm-hmm. is this is not going to solve...
0: And there's not been that many studies.
1: There's not been that many studies. Right. I mean, there, there's a, a great academic name, Mel Slater in Barcelona. And then there's my groups that have been doing this. And, uh, you know, what we're showing is that in general, it is better than control conditions, but it doesn't work every time. And, you know, it also depends on the content. And this is, uh, the question I get all the time is, does VR change empathy? And my, right. my answer is, well, you wouldn't say that about film or the written word. Mm-hmm. It depends on what you do. Right. And, you know, I'm just a hack when it comes to making VR content, right? What do I know about creating experiences? My, right. my, my, my strength is studying how these things work, and right. I've been put in the position because. There's no content out there to create these experiences, like becoming homeless, and, and and to help Courtney work on Thousand Cut Journey. And and when smarter people than me are making the content, I think it'll be better. Right. But uh, you know, in general, to sum up the empathy research, it does tend to work better than role playing or watching right. a video. But I think it's,
0: you have to inject people with something like drugs or something else, or some digital thing in your brain. Like it's, putting a chip in there that changes things. I don't it's know.
1: certainly not going to help your use case, uh, your Oval Office use case, I don't think. <laughs> gonna
0: I think we're going to give up on him on that one. Um, and then lastly, manipulation, speaking of Donald Trump, uh, lying, uh, people feeling um, tricked. Uh, uh, you could do that. This is like, you know, just right now the Internet's getting in trouble. All the tech people are for like the... The results of their inventions maybe aren't as benign as we all thought with Russia and everything. It's like every day it's something, another fresh horror that the tech, the result of their inventions. This seems open to so much horrible manipulation that you know what I mean like the the I mean, road it goes down
1: uh, so in VR when you're experiencing spherical video compared to computer graphics I think it'll be different because of the expectations mm-hmm. with computer graphics very few people have expectations of truth mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to spherical video that's where we're in this kind of danger land because you mm-hmm. think it's, you know, it's going to be real but maybe it's not so right. VR suffers the same problem as all media it can be manipulated where VR comes in differently is that it's so intense mm-hmm. and it feels real so Mm. um that's the concern is not can it be manipulated more because the answer is yes all mm-hmm. media get manipulated the, the, the worry is that when it's manipulated that it creates this muscle memory for an experience that you know has a different result than simply reading something
0: and also just on the since there's been so much attention around attention uh, it's stealing of attention essentially just recently for example uh, we don't like reality reality. Reality, reality isn't as nice, and that's what Ready Player One's about to come out talking about. That they live in these horrible places, and so they go into the whatever the the, the place they go uh, to experience more better a better life. The oasis, The oasis. Yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah.
1: So. Yes, uh, in my lab we've got a 20-minute rule um, and you're not supposed to be in there for more than that. Mm. uh, Yeah,
0: because that's going to work with normal
1: people. um, They don't eat too much fried food. There's a pair of German psychologists uh, who published a paper in 2014 where one watched his buddy while he stayed in VR for 24 hours. Oh no, what happened? It's
0: like the guy who ate all those McDonald's hamburgers. Yeah. Got fat, and sick.
1: So by by hour seventeen, um, he was reporting not being able to discern whether events were happening in VR and outside. Oh so, dear. Um, so uh, I I am advocating on this show today that we should not be spending all day in VR and acknowledging Said
0: the VR researcher. I'm
1: not a I am not avi do not I don't play video games. I don't have a Facebook account. I mean I <laughs> I, I, I go outside for a living. I, yeah. That's that's that. You like
0: reality, reality. I
1: do, I yeah. do. But in the same light, you know, we shouldn't be. You know, if Five years from now, listeners, you are putting on VR to read your email. Then I've done something wrong as an advocate. Mm-hmm. I think we should reserve VR.
0: No, Jeremy, there's going to be a chip in your eye. It's going to be VR. Don't you understand?
1: Um, I get pitches. Uh, to, I get. Oh,
0: it's p- going there. I get
1: those pitches Not quite today. often. We'll
0: be dead, but that's where it's going. Like yeah. enhanced people.
1: So my advice is to go outside, uh, save VR for the things that make it special, and Mm -hmm. we don't need to be reading our email in VR.
0: Well, that was a great way to end. We're talking to Jeremy Ballinson. He runs the Virtual Human Interaction Lab at Stanford. He's a professor here, and he has a new book out, uh, which you should buy, Experience on Demand, what virtual reality is, how it works, and what it can do. There's a lot of hype around virtual reality, and this is like a nice, clear thing of where we're going and, and where we are. So it's not hyped or... Undercut. Anyway, Jeremy, it was great talking to you. Thank you for coming on the
1: show. Thank you so much.
0: If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, especially being down here at Stanford, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes. You can find nearly 200 past interviews in whatever app you use to listen to this or on our website, recode.net slash podcast. Well, we could do those in VR and I could just hit people. I feel Kara whacking you or something like that. I think that'd be good. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find the show. Uh, now that you're done with this, you should check out our other Recode Radio podcast on Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You'll have no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I host Two Embarrassed to Ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. We've had some really great issues in recently. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference and an upcoming uh, show that I'm doing with MSNBC on the future of work. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode, and thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.
1: I'm Sean Ramosverum. I'm the host of Today Explained, a new show from Vox. It's an all-killer, no-filler daily news explainer that'll drop every afternoon. But not on the weekend. Our show's going to explain the news every way we know how. Clips, radio drama, maybe even a song. Today Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen.